Um, good morning, guys. My name is Reggie. Um, one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. And this morning we're going to continue on in the book of Ephesians, the series that we've been dealing with um, for a few weeks now and the series with which we will be dealing with uh, for some time to come. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to look at just a few verses from Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read them for us. Um, I'll give you a moment to turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 11 through 14. And this is what God's word says. <clears throat> In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have together this morning, a time to come perhaps with heavy hearts, perhaps with discouraged hearts, maybe with joyful hearts, but God, a time to come nonetheless to be together, to worship together, to um, pray together, to take communion together, to hear your word together. And so God, we pray over the next few minutes as we specifically enter a time as um, we, we want to hear from your word. God, I pray that, that even now you would move in our midst, that our minds and our hearts might be open to what you would say to us. God, I pray very specifically over the next few minutes as I stand on this stage and talk that the words that I speak wouldn't just be my words, God. They would be words proclaiming the gospel, words um, lifting up Christ high that all men might be drawn to him. And so, God, I pray very specifically that you would use me as an instrument of your grace, mercy, an instrument of your love and the gospel. God, that your word might be proclaimed that you would move in such a way to draw hearts to yourself. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So apart from my responsibilities here at Redemption Church, I also work for the city of Augusta. Uh, I'm an IT guy, um, an IT geek, if you will. Um, and so I have specific responsibilities within the departments of public safety within the city of Augusta, sheriff's office and the fire department, 911, things like that. And so this past week, I was out at one of the sheriff's office locations doing something, and uh, a guy came up to me and says, um, hey, uh, I was talking to somebody this morning, and they told me that you're a theologian. And I responded and said, what? What are you talking about? And he said, well, I hear that you've been to seminary, and I don't remember what else he said. He said a couple other things. And I said, that's true but that doesn't make me any more of a theologian than you are. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? Because you have an educational background that I don't have. I said, maybe, but we're all theologians. And he said, why? And I said, do you believe something about God? He said, absolutely, I believe something about God. I said, okay, then you're a theologian. And what's important is not whether you have an academic degree that certifies you to be a theologian or not. What's important is whether the theology that you have is good and right and true. 
and whether that theology impacts and affects everything about your life. And that's essentially what happens here in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 are passages of scripture, or a specific passage of scripture where Paul is entering into this great big um, this great big prayer of worship is essentially what it is. It's a giant doxology. And so Paul is laying out for us some very specific theological things. They're high ideas, big truths. And he's not telling us necessarily something to do. Paul isn't necessarily applying something specific here, but what he's doing is he's giving truth to the Ephesian church. Now, if you go through and you read a lot of Paul's letters, most of Paul's letters, actually, if not all of them, Paul is writing to specific places and he is talking about specific situations. And so normally Paul's letters start out with these a few chapters of this just big, rich truth, and then he closes his books by applying them specifically to the situation at hand. And so what we have in Ephesians chapter 1, up until we are here in verse 14 that we've been dealing with for a few weeks, are big truths, big ideas that Paul has been laying out for us. And so what we're going to do this morning is exactly what Paul is giving us. We're going to examine some of these big truths that Paul has handed us, and we're going to see how we apply those things to our life. Sort of just like the conversation I had with the guy this week. We're going to talk about life-altering, reality-changing truths that if we understand them, should impact everything about us and should impact everything about our life. And very specifically, we're going to take a look at three big ideas this morning. Three big ideas. Truth, hope, and belonging. Giant, huge ideas. But that's what we're going to spend our time examining this morning. Truth, hope, and belonging. So let's dive in first with the idea of truth. That's where we're going to start. Take a look back at verse 13. Paul writes there in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so what is it in this passage right here that Paul defines as truth? Well, Paul specifically talks about the gospel of your salvation. And we live in a world that constantly questions truth. We live in a world that constantly seeks to redefine truth according to whatever um, whim or whatever feeling somebody might have. We live in a world that likes to say, um, well, that's fine for you to believe, and that's true for you, but that's not true for me, which is a ridiculous thing to say. It makes no sense. And yet, that's the culture that we live in, a culture that redefines truth and a culture that seeks to... um, decide in and of itself what's right, wrong, true, good, bad, whatever it may be, rather than looking to some outside objective truth. And yet in this passage here in 13, Paul refers to something very specifically as truth. And yet our culture has a problem with that. Let me give you an example of how our culture redefines, not truth, but redefines big ideas all the time. Let's take the example of the word friend. And I'll chase this rabbit for just a second. 
because it actually drives me crazy. But let's take the word friend for a second and let's examine it scripturally. What is a friend? What does Jesus say about friendship? When he's talking to his disciples, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So in John chapter 15, Jesus says, you're my friends. And he gives them something specific to do, specifically in a relationship to Christ. In Proverbs 17, 17, when he talks about, when, when um, the writer of Proverbs is talking about friendship, he says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And yet, in our day, in our time, in our culture, this guy named Mark Zuckerberg, you familiar with who he is? Has pulled off the greatest redefinition of a word that has ever happened. If biblically we look at the concept of friendship, a friend is someone that loves you, that's always there for you, that comes through for you, that is there in the midst of adversity. But according to Facebook, what's a friend? It's somebody that you graduated from high school with 20 years ago, in my case, 20 years ago, that you haven't talked to in 20 years, but every once in a while you go and look at their photo album on Facebook to see how their life stacks up against yours, right? Can that guy run that race as fast as I can? Surely he can't because in high school, he couldn't keep up with me. And that's what we call a friend. It's, it's crazy because what we're really doing is we're isolating ourselves more from those people while at the same time making us feel more connected to them. And that's the opposite of what a friend is, right? According to scripture, it's a giant redefinition of friendship that's happened right before our eyes and, and we miss it. Our culture does that all the time. That's one example and it doesn't specifically apply to um, the big idea of truth, but it's an example of how our culture and the world we live in changes things. So let's back up for a second. We live in a very relativistic world where everybody gets to be the judge of what's true and what's right and what's ethical and what's moral and what things actually mean. And the problem is this, when everything is relative, when there's no standard of truth, when everyone and anyone gets to be the judge of truth and determine truth the logical conclusion of that way of thinking is that truth doesn't exist outside of us. It exists internal to us. It's something that's subjective. And yet Paul right here talks about truth as being the gospel of our salvation. It's not something internal. It's something actual. It's not something subjective. It's something that is objective. And so the way things happen for us is we like to say, well, I believe that this is true and you say this is not true. And so um, let me just give you an example that's very real to us, to our culture, to our society. It's the example of abortion. There are people in our society and culture who believe that abortion is okay. There are others who believe that abortion is not okay. And what do both of them do in the midst of an argument, in the midst of an argument and in the midst of a discussion? They point at one another. And they say, you're a bigot because you don't believe the way that I do, so you're wrong. No, you're a bigot because I, you don't believe the way that I do. We, we end up pointing at one another. 
We end up arguing and we end up saying, attacking individuals rather than coming back to what's true, what's right, what God's word has to say, where we find truth. Our world is a place where truth has been nullified before it is ever spoken because truth is seen as the rotten root of bigotry and prejudice and intolerance. But relativism, on the other hand, is seen as the wholesome mother of cultural respect and tolerance and peace. And so you're looking at me right now going, why do you keep talking about that? Why are you going on and on and on and on and on about the way our society does things? Well, it's simple. In verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that truth exists, that truth is objective not subjective, that truth exists regardless of your feelings and my feelings about truth. And the truth is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if truth is found in Jesus, then it ought to affect everything about our lives. Everything about our lives. In John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus and Pilate, Pontius Pilate, are having a conversation, and Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king, and Jesus responds, and he says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Truth ought to impact everything about us and everything we are. Because Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So in the midst of your life, how does the fact that truth is found in Jesus affect you? What's the life-altering, reality-changing application? And it's simple. All you got to do is answer this question. When you have to make decisions in your life, Where do you go to get advice? And where do you go to get answers? When you have to make decisions on things that are deeply personal to you and that matter greatly to you, that affect you, that affect the very next thing that you're going to do, what's your guide? Where do you turn? Where do you look? And the thing there is, If you're not listening to Jesus's voice, if you're not listening to the truth of the gospel of our salvation, then where are you finding truth? You're finding truth somewhere else that is subject to change. The truth of the gospel is this. It's the truth of everything that God has done for us, that he's created us, he saved us, he set us apart for him, given us all spiritual blessings, redeemed us, changed us. When you have deeply personal decisions to make that affect you, that affect your family, that affect this church, where do you go for direction? Because if it's not to Jesus, you're not going to truth. It's simple. Truth exists. It's found in Jesus. And that should affect everything. There's nothing There are no decisions you can make in your life, nothing you can do that shouldn't be affected by that. It should all point back to Jesus. You with me? Everybody okay? Are you mad? Because you look angry. 
And that's okay. You can be mad. Truth. It's real. It's objective. It's not subject to redefinition. It's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul tells us that. It's the truth of the gospel of our salvation. Truth is found in Jesus. It ought to impact everything about your life. And so the question is, does it? And if it doesn't, well, why not? Where are you going for your truth? Where are you going for your wisdom? Where are you going? Let's move on to the next big idea of hope. In Ephesians 1, chapter 12, Paul says this, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And Paul here, when he talks about the first, uh, those who were first to hope, in the overall structure of this passage, lots of people think that Paul is making a, um, what he's doing here is he's, he's making a distinction, between the, a, a distinction between the first people to follow Christ, meaning Jewish believers that, um, that followed Christ, the, the disciples and the apostles and whatnot, and the Gentiles of Ephesus that are now hearing the word of Christ and being drawn into a relationship with him. And so Paul is talking about bringing this group of Jewish people and this group of Gentiles together in Christ. Um, but, but that's not really what I want to focus in for a second. Like I said, I want to focus in on the idea of hope. And I want to focus in on the biblical idea of hope because biblically speaking and scripturally speaking, hope is something that's much bigger and grander than we think of when we think of hope. We say things like, I hope the Raiders win today or tomorrow, whenever they play, Tommy, right? Or I hope the Gamecocks keep on winning like they did yesterday. Or I hope that my favorite band's new album will be great, or I hope I get the job, or I hope that he calls me back after our first date, or I hope she pays attention to me, or whatever. And for us, hope is oftentimes just a subjective feeling with no real guarantee of what the outcome will be. And yet, scripturally speaking, hope is something bigger than that. Hope is objective with real guarantees based on the character of God himself. And so when it comes to the ideas that define the very core of who we are, we are a people who understand and have truth because it's been given to us by Jesus. And we, that's part of our identity right? That's what this whole series is about in Ephesians, our identity in Christ. We are a people who have the identity of having truth revealed to us by the work of Jesus Christ, by, by what God has done in history. We're also a people of hope. It should define us because our hope is based on the character of God himself. And because God is good, because he has proven himself faithful, because he offers guarantees that he will do what he says he will do. Read the entire Old Testament and then look at Jesus. God has done what he promised. He is doing what he promised. We are a people of hope because God's character means that God is going to come through. And in verse 14, Paul even makes reference to that. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit and he says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. We'll talk about that more in a second. But God comes through. 
We sang about that a minute ago, didn't we? It just hit me. I'm quick like that. God comes through. A guarantee is only as good as the one who offers it, right? And if God offers a guarantee, then God comes through. Let me help define hope a little better for you. I am 37 years old. I know I look a lot younger. It's okay. You can feel that way. 21 years ago, I was 16, and you do the math. Um, I think the math is right. 21 years ago, I was 16, and I started dating my now wife, Amy. She's in the back, shaking her head, embarrassed. But 21 years ago, Amy and I started dating, and we started dating when we were sophomores in high school. If there are anybody in high school, don't do that. Don't date. It's pointless. Um, Especially Natalie, if you're listening back there, don't date. Natalie's my six-year-old daughter. Anyway, when I was 16, Amy and I started dating, and we started dating during the school year, and whenever I was done with my sophomore year of high school, I got my first real job, and it paid $5 an hour, and that was a lot of money. And the minimum wage at the time was, uh, I think, four twenty-five, and so I felt rich. I could work for a whole day and make 40 bucks. And my first day on the job, I worked for this guy that was a former Green Beret. He was a Green Beret during um, Vietnam. And uh, he was just a hardcore dude, scary. He's still scary to this day. And um, so he drops me off at this house. He was a handyman, did a little bit of everything. He drops me off at this house. He pulls up into this driveway, and I get out of the driveway. And in the driveway is about four tons of gravel. And we pull up, and... Quickly, I'm putting two and two together, and I realize that my job for today is going to have to do with four tons of gravel. And he gets a wheelchair, I mean, a a wheelbarrow out, not a wheelchair, a wheelbarrow out of the truck, and he gives me a shovel, and he says, this is what I need you to do. I need you to move this pile of gravel from the front of the house to the back of the house. And it's complicated because the house was on a hill. So I couldn't go around the house this way, and the only way to get around the house this way was to go up and over a deck and come back down. So my first day of this first real job, I was filling a wheelbarrow full of rocks and pushing it up a two-by-four onto a deck, going to the other side, pushing it down, and going around to the back of the house and dumping it in a pile. It seems pointless, right? And um, it was a hard day of work, but I had hope because I was going to make 40 bucks at the end of the day. And to a 16-year-old kid, 40 bucks meant I could pay for gas in my truck and I could take Amy to Applebee's. Yeah. And we could get two chicken finger baskets and a basket of mozzarella sticks and two sweet teas. And I'd have money left over. It was hope. Are, Are you with me? There was hope because I was going to get paid and I was going to go on a date. So I pushed the wheelbarrow around the house all day as best I could, and I moved that pile of rocks, and it took me more than one day to do it. But I had hope because there was a reward, right? And it was a guarantee of a reward. I had a job. The hope that I had was a sure thing, and it motivated me to do the job that I had, and it changed my perspective. 
right? Because I wasn't just moving a pile of rocks. I was making money to go on a date. And I was happy about it. You could have given me 20 piles of rocks. It wouldn't have mattered. I was getting money to go on a date, and that was a big deal, right? It affected everything about my day. I kept at it. The guy left me there, me and a wheelbarrow and a shovel and a hose pipe to get water out of and a pile of rocks. But I had hope at what was coming because it was a sure thing, and I got to go on a date. You with me? It affected everything about my day. The hope we have in Jesus is the hope of a great inheritance that's offered by God. Paul talks about it right here. It's the hope of spending our lives in the presence of a great God. Because right now, life is difficult for lots of us. I can name specific people in the midst of our body of faith that have suffered immeasurably just in the last few weeks and months while at the same time others of us have rejoiced greatly because things have gone so well for us. But where's the hope? The hope is in Christ. The hope is in the character of God. The hope is in the fact that God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. Life is hard. There is no doubt about it. You talk to anybody in this room, life gets difficult. Where's the hope? According to Paul, the hope is in Christ. The hope is in what God has done for us, and God has guaranteed that hope through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the question for us is, where is your hope? Where's your hope? Is your hope in your bank account? Is your hope in the promise of a job? Is your hope in the promise of a relationship with someone else? Is your hope in what someone is going to do for you? Or is your hope in what God has already done for you? Where's your hope? You see, the fact that we have a hope that is sure in Christ and what God has done for us ought to affect everything about your life. Every situation, every circumstance, everything that occurs in your life, you have a hope that is sure, that is guaranteed, that is based on the character of God and God alone. And that's a hope worth having. Truth, hope, third big idea, belonging. Let's move on to the idea of belonging. Read verse 11 once more. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Since verse three of this chapter, Paul has told us of every spiritual blessing that is ours. We've been loved everlastingly by God. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been chosen by God in order to be made holy. We have, we have obtained an inheritance according to the verses we just read. 
Um, this passage is a little bit difficult to interpret and understand, I think. And um, there are some good commentators who sort of disagree as to what verse 11 here is getting at. And there's two reasons for that. One is the language. Um, the language looks very clear to us. To us, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Looks pretty straightforward to us. In the Greek, it causes a little bit of confusion, though, because there's a word that Paul uses um, to talk about having obtained an inheritance that's used nowhere else in Scripture. And so um, it's just it's a difficult passage to understand um, linguistically. And so the debate has risen. Do we understand this passage of Scripture to say we have obtained an inheritance for ourselves from God? Or is this passage telling us that we are God's inheritance? And what makes it difficult is that both of those things are biblical ideas, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, God is talking to his people and he says, but the Lord has taken you and I'm sorry, not God is talking, but Moses is talking, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And so that's a biblical idea. God's people are God's inheritance. But also we have things like Romans 8, 16 and 17. I'll read it for you. It says, but the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And so both are biblical ideas. We are God's inheritance. We get an inheritance. What's Paul talking about here? And I am not going to claim to be an expert on what Paul is talking about. I'm going to rely on people who have done much more study than I have. And it seems that the consensus of a lot of authors is that what Paul is talking about here is that God has chosen his people to be his inheritance. And so Paul is getting at the idea that in him, we, in Christ, we are made to be God's inheritance, that we are God's own possession, that God has set his people apart to be his inheritance. And if you think about that, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty incredible that of all the things that God could have chosen to be his own inheritance, he chose people. One pastor has put it this way when referring to this, he says, it's as if someone has found a vast treasure and the leader of the expedition has asked, what do you want? And he says, this is the Pete that I want. This is the treasure of treasures. The rest you can have, but this is what I want. I want them. It's as if God has said, this is what I want. I want you. I want you, my people. I've chosen you for my inheritance. And that's a huge theological truth. It's, it's, it's ginormous, if I can use that word. I don't know if that's ever been uttered in a sermon. Surely somebody's used that word. We like to talk often of Christ being in us, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. But this truth says we are held by God as his own, as his inheritance, that we as the people of God are in Christ. And you didn't become the inheritance of God by chance. You became the inheritance of God by God's will because God said, I want them to be my inheritance. I want them to be mine. It wasn't up to you. Something that God did. And so what does that mean for us? If God chose me to be his inheritance, how does that affect me? 
If God holds me as something precious, if God holds his people in his hand as something precious, what does that mean for you? Just this week, I saw a discussion happen uh, in all places on Facebook. And someone was writing about um, and making comments and having a conversation with some of his friends about the very idea of salvation and whether one can lose salvation. It's a topic that's discussed and debated often, and maybe it's something that you worry about. I, I don't know. But part of the truth of what this means to us, part of what it means that we belong to Christ, that we are God's inheritance, it's this, is that we are secure as God's inheritance. If you had something valuable to you, something incredibly value, Amy and I talk about this, something value, if our house catches on fire, I'm jumping through the fire to get my kids because I love them, but I'm also getting the external hard drive that has all the pictures on it, right? It's important. It's important. And so if we have something that's valuable to us. We take care of it. And God, if he's chosen us to be his followers, then he takes care of his followers. We remain his followers because it's God who did the work. Are, are you with me? We have great hope and great confidence in the fact that God is the one who set us apart to be his own, not anxiousness and fear. We didn't do anything to become God's. God did it. And so there's great confidence and there's great hope in that. A few weeks ago, my family and I jumped in our SUV and we drove over to Columbia, South Carolina, and we adopted a little dog. And depending on who you talk to in my family, the dog's name is Daisy Pooh, Daisy May, or Daisy Bear. It just depends. And so we adopted this dog and we brought her home, and she's an incredibly sweet little dog and my kids grab her around the neck and pull her down the hall by her legs and do all these crazy things that if I were the dog, I'd turn around and bite him in the face. But the dog doesn't. The dog is incredibly sweet, and she loves being around the family. And one of the things that I've noticed about this dog is that she gets incredibly anxious when she's left alone. She barks. She turns over her water bowl. She barks more. And she barks more. And she's incredibly anxious when she's alone. And even when you let her outside to go to the bathroom, she's not going off the porch unless you walk out there with her. She's just anxious about being alone. And I'm not sure what's happened to this dog in the past, but she's scared to death of being by herself for some reason. And you and I, there may be things that we're anxious about, but one of the things we don't have to be anxious about is being left alone. Because God values you, God has set you apart as his own, and God has secured you as his inheritance. There's no need for us to try and earn God's approval. It's given. That's what the gospel is. We talk about it all the time. So in response, our response is not to be anxious in fear. It's to live for God's glory and enjoy the joy that comes along with it. You with me? Let me move on to another thing. What does it mean that God has chosen us for his own inheritance? I don't think that the concept of self-esteem really showed up a lot in the Bible. And yet, it's important to our identity to understand something. 
a lot of us tend to find our identity in things around us. We tend to find our identity in our job. We tend to find our identity in our spouse, in our significant other, in our family, whatever it may be. Just yesterday, I spent eight hours at a retreat for my office, for my job, and it was horrible. A work retreat. And for a couple of hours, I had to listen to this HR person from uh, another company in Atlanta come and, and talk about finding your leadership purpose in your job. And... Um, the whole time she was talking, it was very clear that she personally and what she was directing us to as people who work in the IT department for the city of Augusta was to find significance and meaning and importance in our job. And she had us fill out this set of questionnaires and I was sitting there going, please don't ask me any of these questions because I'm going to have to tell you that you're crazy because you will never find significance of importance and meaning in anything other than in Jesus. She did ask me a question. One of the questions on there was, um, what personal story have you ever heard that moved you to tears or inspired you? And she said, what about you? What's your answer to that question? I looked at her and I said, I don't cry ever. Anyway, so... What's my point? My point is that all of us tend to try and find meaning somewhere. And those of us in this room may have tried to find meaning elsewhere than in Christ. You may be guilty of it now. But the truth of the idea that we belong to God trumps everything else. Your meaning, your identity is found in Christ because you belong to Christ. You don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to your job. You don't belong to your spouse. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to this church. You belong to Christ. And if you can't find significance in that, there's something wrong. There's nowhere else you will find significance of that magnitude as you will in Christ. You with me? We've talked about some big ideas this morning. We've talked about truth. We've talked about hope. And we've talked about belonging. And I've attempted in just the brief time we've had to say these big ideas that Paul has poured out to us. Truth, hope, belonging, they mean something. They should affect us. They should affect everything about us. So the question is, do you believe those big truths? Do you believe that truth is found in Christ and Christ alone? Do you believe that the hope that God offers is real and secure? Do you believe that in Christ we have tremendous significance because we belong to him? And if you're not believing those things, then it will affect your life. If you are believing those things, it will affect your life. The question is, do you believe them or not? Because if you believe them and you allow them to impact everything that you are, then the way you live, every decision you make, where you go for truth, where you go for hope, where you go for significance will be affected by those truths. If you don't believe them, 
It'll affect you the same. It's just going to affect you in the opposite direction. You with me? What do you believe in this morning? What do you believe in? How is it affecting you? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word, you have given us great truth, truth of significant magnitude. Thank you that in you we have truth and hope and God, the assurance of belonging. God, it's incredible that you would do that for us and and God, yet you have. And God, we thank you. And so God, as we begin to respond to what we've heard this morning, God, I pray that you would let those truths become real and significant, that you would bury them into our brains, God, that that you would have your way in our lives, that we might seek to glorify you by allowing those truths to work in us from the inside out. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.